Thank you, Catherine. Hi, everyone. I'm Brendan. You should know me. I'm delighted to be bringing the word to you and in my most casual wear. As every couple of times I get to preach at 6.30, I like to wear shorts and thongs just to make sure I don't class the place up too much. So, <laughs> with that said, I'm going to pray and then we're going to engage with God's word. Father God, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to engage with you tonight, uh, to talk about what it means to follow you and particularly what it means when the church uh, takes your name in vain. Um, and so we ask, Lord, tonight you open our hearts to what you have to say and open up your word to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So around 1954, legendary Italian diver Duilo Marcanta, who uh, is legendary, I am told, but my knowledge of Italian divers, um, not great. Um, nonetheless, he commissioned a, a sculptor, one Guido Galetti, to create and cast a bronze sculpture of Christ, which is the one you're looking at presently. His hope was to set up a, a sculpture as a memorial for another fellow diver, a friend of his, Dario Gonzatti, who was the, the first Italian to use scuba gear at all. Um, and Duilio's dear friend had died in 1947 in a, a scuba accident. And this is the result. This is Christ of the Abyss, an eight-foot-tall rendition of our Savior, deposited 56 feet under the surface of the Mediterranean Sea, just off San Frutuoso. There are replicas of this statue as well in Granada and Florida. It's a powerful sort of image, um, with the Son of God standing on the seafloor and gazing up open-armed to the beams of sunlight that penetrate from the surface above. It says something about God being sovereign in all places, including the dark places. Um, Something about the way that Christ descended into death for the sake of those who love him. But Christ of the abyss has another lesson to impart, and this one is entirely accidental because having been submerged for over 60 years, during that time the living things of the deep began to take their toll. The uh, image accumulated sea moss and crustaceans and ocean grime, um, which over time turns the statue from an image of the Son of God all um, blessed and recognizable into something dirty and obscured and kind of like the Son of God, and then finally into something altogether monstrous and not at all like Jesus. The accumulation of the sea life and scum completely obscured the beauty of the original statue of Christ within, and that's not a bad metaphor for how the world can come to see the church. They understand the claim of holiness and beauty of the, people of, of the people of God are making from within, but they see a history of actions that are not necessarily all shimmering pure sunlight, and some of which are genuinely awful. And these things cluster over and they cake the image of Jesus in the world to the point where a believer might ask his friend if they want to come to church to learn about Jesus, and that friend will think, why would I ever want to go anywhere near that? Now, Christ in the abyss has been serviced. We've been uh, dragged out of the sea, cleaned up, and deposited back. The stewards of the statue take better care of it now. But Jesus' name and reputation in the world is carried by the church, and that cannot be quite so easily washed clean. So tonight we are going to, um, as we move towards the end of this series about blockers, about things that might stand in the way of people coming to know Jesus, why they might deny the call to, to come to church or to come to know who Christ is. Um, we're talking about church abuses through history and how how is anyone supposed to take the church in this world credibly as the voice of God after all these things have happened? And I've called that taking his name in vain because that's the commandment that applies to these crimes. Taking God's name in vain is an often misunderstood commandment. Um, it's often taken to mean 
Uh, don't, in the unfortunate Australian fashion, use Jesus Christ's name when you stub your toe, or for emphasis, for example. Or don't, in the American fashion, ask God to damn things when you are frustrated. These are disrespectful, even sinful uses of the name of God, but that's not what that commandment really means. To take someone's name in vain, or take someone's name even, to means to operate in their place. That's why we praise Jesus' name, because by taking his name, by calling ourselves by his name, Christians, we operate in his place before the throne of God. We're judged not according to our name, but according to his. And then to take that name and to do something wildly opposed to God's will is terribly crime against God. It is taking his name in vain. As when Israel's false shepherds against whose um, Ezekiel was writing were abusing their position, taking Lord's name in vain, supposedly his greatest champions. They claimed to be God's appointed leaders at that time, but they did not act in God's appointed fashion, and so it became possible for people to lose touch with God's character. This is the problem with false prophets. It's the problem with the church when it departs from God's will. Now, when someone talks about evils done in God's name, it's usually one of these things, is the, the big ones. I'm calling out the sort of the greatest hits of, uh, of church evils. Um, and so I want to do a little bit of history tonight to get some perspective on each of these matters before we can try and understand how the church is supposed to move forward despite having these things in its past, having taken the name of God in vain sometimes. And so I've listed these four, and we'll ask, uh, how can the ch anyone trust the church after the Crusades, after the Inquisition, after the witch trials, and after the child abuse scandal, much more recently in our memories? These aren't the only things that the, the global church has ever um, been accused of doing wrong, but they are exemplary of those things. And so that's where we'll start tonight. Now, lots of folks outside the church um, know little more than the names of these things. Those inside might know a little bit more, um, but lots of folks outside the church know little more than the names of these things and the idea that something bad was done, and often done on a massive scale. How true that is, we'll have to see as we move through. So first up, how can you trust the church after the Crusades? Most people understand that the Crusades were holy wars in the Middle Ages between the Muslim Empire and Christian Europe. Hundreds and thousands of men, nobles, and peasants left their homes, their families in Europe to join great armies going to fight in the Middle East. Most of us agree that Jesus was a generally peaceful sort of guy. We might call him war-averse in general. So how can anyone take the church seriously when it has a history of calling on Jesus' name? That's the, cruce, the cross in crusade. In order to rally armies for conquest and plunder, and that's a good question. So first we're going to look at the, the popular understanding of these things. And the popular understanding of the crusades are about like this. If you pulled the average uni student off the bus at UQ and asked him, before you go to the library to pretend to study, what were the Crusades? He'd answer something like this. He'd say that they are a series of invasions, starting in the 11th century, of Muslim lands by foreign European armies. Uh, the Pope would call a crusade, and then, in the name of Jesus, these armies would go and conquer and slaughter their way to Jerusalem or somewhere nearby. They might say that these crusades were supercharged in their violent aspect by the zeal of believers, that they were more brutal than other wars had been up till that point that the soldiers would massacre whole towns on their way. 
and that these crusades were the beginning of a thousand-year-long tension between Christians and Muslims, which we still feel to this day. The idea is that the tensions in the Middle East, the flare-up of the extreme brands of Islam, which drive young Muslims to attack civilians, can be laid at the feet of these ancient wars provoked by the church. So how accurate exactly is that? Now, in truth, the Crusades were conducted primarily with the intent of liberating the heartland of ancient Christianity. The truth is, up until the mid-600s, much of the land that we consider today part of the Muslim world were Christian in at least some great part. Syria and Egypt and Lebanon, Israel, these areas, they'd been conquered by the Romans, who about 400 years after Christ rose again, became the Christian Empire. And Christianity welled up from inside churches, from inside the people inside these places. It did not sweep over as a conquest. But by the 11th century, the Muslim Empire had emerged. It had conquered its way across the Middle East and begun fighting its way into Europe, both in the Mediterranean states and also through Spain. And the Christians of Europe were terrified. They were terrified that these wars would continue endlessly. And you can debate whether or not these wars should have been conducted at all, the Crusades in response, but there's no disputing that they were largely defensive wars, at least in their design. Now, as for the brutality of those wars, it's true that the Crusaders sacked Jerusalem, and they slaughtered many Muslims and Jews during the course of that war, many of them civilians. They did this, and gruesomely so, in Christ's name, and that's very shocking for us to hear with modern ears. But this kind of violence has been typical for all of human history. A city would build a wall to keep invaders out, and the conquering army would find it very costly to take a city that had a wall. So the general would knock on the door and say, if you surrender and save us this fighting, we won't sack the city. But if you make us fight, there will be no stopping these guys once they're over the wall. Because after, after the soldiers are, have to climb over the bodies of their friends to win the day, they're not going to stop and shake hands and then eat orange wedges and go home. There is a threat of an army rampaging through your streets, and that was meant to be a standard of forcing people to surrender without a fight. This is not to say that's a moral way to conduct war or a particularly good thing to do, but it is to say that's simply how the world was. It was a standard of warfare in the time. It's just another chapter in the, in the bloody relationship between Muslims and Christians that sprang up shortly after Muhammad united the tribes and invented the idea of holy war. This is all very uncomfortable stuff to hear, and the Crusaders committed plenty of atrocities over those years, but there was nothing particularly Christian about it. That's just how the fallen world has been for most of human history. It's been a whirlwind of fire and steel and lead. And it's only shocking to us because our generation is the most safe, privileged, most protected human beings that have ever existed in the history of the world. So maybe the Crusades aren't a uniquely Christian expression of evil, but what about the Inquisition? Can you trust the church after the Inquisition? This charming little picture is meant to commemorate that awful undertaking. If you can make out the figures there, you'll see this room is full of many gentlemen in robes, mostly monks and religious functionaries, and they are taking their orders from an inquisitor seated on the right. He's the one with the funny hat. Everywhere else in the room are various prisoners being tortured from left to right. There's a fellow about to have a torch put to his feet. 
There's a fellow being hung up on the wall behind him, another guy about to be seared with some kind of hot iron, another bald chap staked up on a rack. If you've never heard of the Inquisition, this is pretty much what people mean when they're talking about it. Back in the time when the church had institutional power, they would accuse someone of a sin or a heresy and then torment them until they confessed. The standards of law that we appreciate today, the standards of English common law, innocent till proven guilty, jury of your peers, etc., those things hadn't really been conceived yet. The Spanish Inquisition, and there were others, but the Spanish was the big one, was the church's way of trying to weed out heresy and evil from the nations of Europe, and it went badly. And this is often cited as, as an example of the church abusing its power in a way which should undermine its credibility forever. So what is the Inquisition in popular understanding if we ask our suffering uni student off the bus? Well, he might say that the Inquisition was an oppressive and torturous um, series of investigations by church panels in which the Spanish Inquisition was the worst, and they used a series of uniquely cruel uh, punishments which only religious zealots are capable of. Only religion could cause someone to torture another human being with hot pokers. Normal people don't do that. They have to be convinced it's God's will. And this was the mortal fate that befell tens of millions of people, particularly in Spain, and between those years of 1500 and 1700. This was so widespread that it constitutes a kind of holocaust that stretched out over 200 years. And anyone who questioned the church's authority would be whisked away, thrown on a rack, and poked with hot metal until they changed their mind or died. How could you trust a church that has that in its past? Well, how close to the truth is that? The first point certainly is true. The Spanish Inquisition and other Inquisitions were torturous investigations by church panels. Absolutely happened. Many people suffered terribly at the hands of church officials who were um, unspeakably cruel in Christ's name. But this cruel series of punishments were, like the Crusades, not uniquely Christian at all. Governments and kings, and whenever this happened, the church was deeply entwined with both, had been doing the kind of things like this since history began. The Persians tortured their prisoners, the Greeks tortured their prisoners, the Romans tortured their prisoners. The Romans fed people to lions and made them fight each other for entertainment. In ancient Rome, if a slave was suspected of a crime, their confession was not considered genuine unless they had been tortured. They did not believe that you could trust a slave's word unless you had put the screws to them. This is horrifying to us because we live in a world where due process, investigation at the expense of the state, universal human rights, all of these things are expected and somewhat taken for granted. But in the scope of human history, those are all fairly recent developments. As for the numbers executed, well, during that time period, there were only about 78 million people in Europe in total and 17 million in Spain, so the idea that millions and millions were killed is a little rich. It's a little more reasonable to estimate between a few thousand and perhaps 30,000, particularly in Spain, over that 200-year period, which is still absolutely awful. About one per 100,000 per year. Now, does this much more modest number excuse these horrible acts? Absolutely not. But does the Inquisition represent a kind of widespread, unique evil that belongs to the church? No, certainly not. 
But sometimes Protestants, we will try and dodge the Inquisition. That's more of a Catholic thing. Good Bible-believing Protestants would never do anything like that. Well, if you want some distance from the Catholic Church, no one burned witches like Protestant Puritans. What did the Spanish Inquisition did formally? Europeans and colonial villages were doing informally. So how can we trust a church after the witch trials happen? You might know something about the witch trials. You can see in this impression at the time, there's a man and a woman in stocks, likely witches, awaiting further punishment. And a third fellow being manhandled while a crowd of uh, buckle-hatted John Bunyan types look on in a pleased sort of way. Now, you might not be formally acquainted with the witch trials specifically. Just about everyone, however, would know what you mean if you use the term witch hunt. It's this kind of thing. Now, in popular understanding, the witch trials were the torture and the, particularly the burning of innocents, particularly women, who had pagan roots or displayed insufficient Christian enthusiasm. And the most famous witch trials were those in Salem, Massachusetts, in which tens of thousands of poor women were burned to death for suspected witchcraft. All of this exemplifies the typical bloodthirsty Christian attitude towards the non-believer, and who could trust a church who teaches its members to do such things? Who indeed, but is the truth much better than that? The truth is the witch trials did happen, and they did disproportionately affect women. About 60% of the people who were killed during this time for these reasons, were women. And those people were charged with any number of superstitious crimes and heresies. In a small town, all the crops might die for some reason they didn't yet understand. The villagers would look around for somebody to explain it, and all too often, their eyes would fall on the social outcast who lives on the fringes of town. They'd scoop them up and torture them. Are you a witch? They'd say anything to make the torture stop. Yes, I'm a witch. Fine. Are there other witches? Yes, of course there are. Is this person a witch? Yes, of course they are. And the cycle would continue. In a frenzied attempt to defend the people from the influence of the devil, European mobs rushed around doing the devil's work in Jesus' name. Now, Salem, despite being the most famous witch trials, are the kind of a blip in the history of this behavior, 20 people in all, over a two-year period. But well recorded, so it makes for good story fodder. Switzerland was really where the stuff happened, shot through with Calvinists and Puritan types. That was the biggest offender. Perhaps 60,000 people killed across a 300-year period in Europe. Once again, around about that one per 100,000 per year mark. But this is just another example of human suspicion of the outsider boiling over into accusation. Witch hunts happened in Muslim countries across Africa, in China, and in the few atheist countries that have briefly flashed into being before they collapse in on themselves, suspicion of the witch is replaced by suspicion of the spy. Throughout communist Russia and China, party officials routinely abducted, tortured, and killed innocents on flimsy charges for political purposes for entirely godless reasons. There is nothing particularly Christian about the witch trials except that they were done in Christ's name when they were occurring in Christian countries. But what about something not so far historical, something that's still painfully lingering and damaging for people today? How can we trust the church after the recent child abuse scandals in the last 20 or 30 years? 
The child abuse scandal that has rocked the church over this last few decades is still very much a fresh wound, and I didn't think I could find or produce a picture that would imply that crime without somehow seeming like I wasn't treating it with the seriousness it deserved, so I chose that picture of a ruined church. Across the world, but in Australia as severely as anywhere else, thousands of priests and pastors and clergymen stand accused of using their position of trust to abuse the children in their care. Churches frequently die under such accusations, either from lack of trust for their disgraced leadership or after being bankrupted in settlement agreements. Is it as bad as we're told? Well, the church abuse scandals in popular understanding, it's the inexcusable, typically sexual exploitation of vulnerable children, particularly boys, particularly by the Catholic Church. Tens of thousands of reports of abuse covered up by Christian organizations. And in the case of the Catholic Church, it's the result of repression and deviation that one must expect of abstinent men. The world thinks clergy and indeed Christians of their various kinds are called to be unusually restrained in their sexual behavior, and so of course they'll be warped into some strange expression. This makes it a compounded crime. The church has placed unrealistic expectations on its churchmen, and as a result has turned them into monsters that prey on the most innocent among us. How could you possibly trust a church if it's responsible for these crimes? And is it as bad as that? Sadly, yes, pretty much. Though it's unfair once again to dump this entirely on the Catholic Church, studies show more recently the abuse is no more prevalent in the Catholic Church than in other denominations. They're just more frequently sued for it, presumably because they are more able to pay it out. These tragedies appear to be more about opportunity by the predator in question than religion. Abuses are as or more common in schools, for example. And if there was an atheist church in which atheists regularly gathered and ran an atheist um, children's section of that, it would likely have its own share of offenders in the same numbers. Churches have absolutely been guilty of covering up such abuses, however. And it is easy enough to understand why churches are built on forgiveness. A church with a reputation for this kind of scandal is going to be damaged or destroyed. The church has every reason to want to believe the problem can be solved quietly. But now, after many years of additional study, and with more research behind us, it's clear that the repeat, rate, uh, repeat offense rate of this kind of offender is incredibly high, above 90%. It can't simply be swept away. Is the global church child abuse scandal real? Yes, unfortunately, so. Is there any excuse for it? No. Does it represent a unique failing of the church? And in a world without the church, would it not have happened? Will something like it not have happened? No. This kind of abuse is not the result of a doctrine or a religion, but of men choosing to exploit the vulnerability of the children in their care. And a cursory look over history and the world will show that the idea that all children are precious and deserving of protection and safety is only the norm in our society because that is a Christian value. And I won't go into the various crimes that other societies have perpetrated on their children. The truth of it is too distressing to contemplate at length. 
But the idea that religion is the root cause of the abuse of children in this country or any other does not stand up to reason. So what's the upshot of all of this ugliness? What is the ugly truth? How does the world and much of the church have the idea that the church is responsible for a peculiar amount of the world's evil? And do we really think that rattling off a list of justifications is going to change people's hearts? I know it's comforting for me to know that these things are often blown out of proportion, but how do we even begin to scrape away the muck and the detritus of these actions that is obscuring the true image of Christ within? However typical these actions might have been for their times and their circumstances, so that people can see the image of Jesus we are supposed to represent to the world. That answer comes in three parts. Part one. The normal human experience in this fallen world is cruelty and exploitation. This is why it's important for us to learn history because it is so easy for us to forget that we are so, so privileged to live now and here. We have everything we need and unbelievable technologies and a police force to stop us from killing each other and an army to stop other people from coming in and killing us. And it is insane for us to sit on top of a of a castle at the top of a mountain of blessings and progress and to look down at the generations that came before us that burned each other alive and brained each other with rocks and then ask, why are they so scared and mean? The truth of humanity without God working through his people is shown to us in Genesis 6 before the flood. That's this passage here. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. That is human nature, evil all the time. The extent to which we live in a world that is not like that is directly associated to how successful the church has been in carrying out its mission in the world and the general grace of God poured out for us. The best fed, best protected, most justly policed, most fairly legislated, most materially wealthy people in the world are the ones living now with a history of the Christian church in their bones. But that does not change the fact that the baseline of human behavior is horrible. We are fallen and fallen hard. Part two. The church is held by the world to a greater moral standard because God's people living in God's way convicts the world of its evil. This causes the world to hate the church. As Jesus warned in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus? Because his presence and actions made them aware of how far short they were falling of God's standards. They had a nice little worldview in which they were the top of the moral food chain, but Jesus threatened that. Likewise, our world is full of people desperate to believe they know everything they need to know about life because the idea that there is a God who demands something of them that they might not be equipped to supply is terrifying. And so the world will be 
twice as willing to believe evils committed by the church, twice as happy to inflate those charges, and twice as willing to investigate those charges at the expense of others. The world holds the church to a double standard. That's part two. And here's part three. The church is held by God to a greater moral standard because God's people live in God's way convicts the world of its evil. Because that is the point of it all. The church is supposed to be a beacon of exceptionally good behavior so that the world can see that. And when someone in the world is brought to a particular point of brokenness by the work of God in their life, when they realize they don't know the answers to how they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing, they will see the example that they were once eager to reject, and they will know that these followers of Jesus know something that I don't. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That from Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, is our divine mandate. Jesus saves us from our sins through his death so that we can live lives that are more and more free from the power of sin and free from the power of death. That's the truth. The world is full of evil. And people in the world are keen to see evil in the people of God because it gets them off the hook. But God's equipped his people with the love and the faithfulness required to meet even that double standard so that when the chips are down... No one can honestly say that Christian goodness is merely common decency. It's uncommon decency. It's what makes the church distinct in the world. It's the good that the church has done, not the evil which is exceptional in human history. It's the good the church has done which is exceptional, not the evil. And while there are so many examples of that good on a grand scale, English common law, the intrinsic value of human life that everyone just understands now, an expectation of peace and charity from the people you just meet in your life around you. The most undeniable examples of good done in Jesus' name are always the individual kind. The countless, ceaseless, selfless actions of Christians who are determined not to take that name in vain, and they perform these acts every day. And these are actions that every single one of us is equipped to do. Every time you prove yourself a trustworthy neighbor and every time you show uncommon trust to someone in need, you are adding to the reputation of Christ in the life of someone who in all probability was never tried as a witch or never abused by a church. And that's important. If you call yourself by the name of Jesus, you need to be relentlessly prepared to pour good into the lives of people around you, even when it is exhausting and self-sacrificial. Because one day, when Jesus opens their heart and gives you an opportunity to speak the gospel into their life, and they look to bearers of Christ's name for some proof of that gospel, they won't be thinking about what Pope Urban II did back in the Dark Ages they will be thinking about how much of a light that you have been in their life. So let's pray. Father God, 
You have the name above all names. And we thank you for your son Jesus who permits us to be called by his name. What a privilege to be his representative in the world, Lord, for each of us to be a representative of him. And what a heavy responsibility that is. We ask forgiveness for times when we as individuals or when we as the global church have called upon your name but done that which you would be ashamed of. We pray you help us discern our actions better each day. But further, God, we pray that you will make us into more worthy bearers of your son's name. Help us to be aware of how we are representing you in the world. Help us to seek out and find more opportunities to do good works and then tell the gospel that supports them. And guide us ultimately, Lord, to the end of those good actions, that the lost ones of this world would come to know you and know your son as savior too. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.